0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week, I'm pleased to say we have David Dennis on the show, and we'll be talking about his fascinating book, Inhumanities: Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. This is a topic I know a lot Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. And each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm pleased to say we have David Dennis on the show, and we'll be talking about his fascinating book *Inhumanities: Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture*. This is a topic I know a little bit about, but uh, not as much as I probably should. Um, I've read I've read some books on the topic, but I've never read one that goes into the degree of detail that uh David has in, in in humanity. So it was a real treat for to me to for me to read the book. And I, I imagine that if you're interested in the topic, and I bet a lot of you are, then um you really should turn to it for insight into what the Nazis sort of thought about um, Western culture. I kind of put that in air quotes. I don't know if I should or not. Um so David, thank you very much for writing the book and welcome to the show.
1: Well it's my pleasure. It's an honor to be uh asked to do, uh, do this interview.
0: Sure. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm presently uh, a professor of history at, university, or at Loyola University Chicago, and um, I uh, focus on uh, cultural and intellectual history, modern European cultural and intellectual history. And uh, so my uh, you know, long term uh, experience has been to try to work out how to connect the mostly the fine arts uh, with uh, what we define as history, which is usually a little bit more politically oriented. But uh, uh, you know, co- colleagues will know that there are different kinds of historians and uh, economic, political, military, and so forth. But uh, general readers might not be aware that. Uh, We do uh, focus on particular problems, and uh, really, ever since uh, college, uh, undergraduate work at the University of Wisconsin, um, my uh, love has been both for history, but also for the arts.
0: So, uh, let's get right into the book itself, and the first question I want to ask you, and the readers may not know exactly, you've hinted at the answer, what exactly is the Fokuscher Beobachter? What is it as a thing?
1: Yes, well, the Folkischer Beobachter uh, was, I'm glad to say, Uh, rather than in the present. But it it was the main uh, newspaper of the National Socialist Movement. And uh, it uh, was a Munich uh, uh, political rag that pre-existed the Nazis by a few months, anyway. Um, uh, And and, um, it was just a four-page publication. But as early as uh, 1920, (coughs) Hitler uh, um, had uh, expressed the need for a newspaper. He knew that the rallies and leaflets and so on were important, and that was actually the you know the core of his his rise in popularity at the time. But uh, this little party, he felt, needed a newspaper. So they purchased this. Uh, uh, this it was already a right-wing uh, um, uh, publication, but they purchased this quite early. And uh, from that point on, it became the main um, uh, outlet for uh, Nazi propaganda and Nazi presentation of, of um, you know, political positions. But then gradually, it, it expands into a much more complete newspaper. And um, by the er- early to mid twenties, you have you know, it's expanded from a four page to an eight page format and to a full newspaper format uh, that includes uh, you know, the news, the the um, uh, economic the 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 um, uh, force, um, uh, stock stock information. It has want uh, ads. It has advertising. It has the weather. It has sports. It has um, uh, special sections and so forth. So it's a full you know full on newspaper by the mid twenties. It's shut down during the period that they're. Um, uh, um, uh, banned after the, the uh, Beer Hall Putsch, uh, but then after that, as the party grows, so grows the newspaper.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: um, uh, once they're in power, it is uh, really the, the, the flagship uh, um, uh, media outlet for the, for the party and uh, reaches a, a subscription level of uh, over a million. And, uh, I, I tend to believe the Florpets must have had a million before that. But if you read the literature, it stated that it was the first German newspaper to reach a, a million, uh, subscribers. Mm-hmm. Now, this is in the, you know, the, the, Nazi era. So, uh, you know, being a subscriber of the paper was probably something, uh, more than, uh, uh, suggested. But, uh, nonetheless, uh, it did have that kind of a readership and, um, uh, was, uh, you know, I think undoubtedly so Jeffrey Herf has written uh, in his book on uh, anti-Semitic imagery has, has, has strongly stated that the, this was the main outlet. This is the one that, that gave the lead to any other uh, public uh, 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 media um, from, uh, coming from the Nazis. Now, there are people who will say, well, you know, you could also take a look at the variety of other newspapers that were out there. Most of those, though, were taken over by the Nazis, you know subsequently, and uh, then followed for the most part the same line that the focus of was following. It was following the line of press conference and press releases that were coming from Berlin. Uh, so you know, you know, the, the media was con- was was controlled by Goebbels, right? And then Goebbels did have the Encliff, which is uh, another newspaper that he put out, and a couple of others, but none of them had the kind of uh, breadth and um, uh, I think broad impact that the focus of did. And the other um, thing that to, to keep in mind is that uh, you know, by turning to the newspaper, you're getting one. Of, of course, there are. are, are our arguments that there are you know, a wide range of interpretations. National Socialists—nothing about National Socialists was it as monolithic as, as as we would think if we, uh, you know, just considered in general popular terms. Everything was a battle. These people were struggling among themselves. Famously, Goebbels and Rosenberg, who is the editor of the of the Focus for a long time, are at each other's throats. But they were all at each other's throats. But. This is the, you know, still, given all of that, um, uh, you know, this would have been the, the public face of the, of the, of the party. And, you know, for the most part, you're getting the party line as such as it is or such as it's imagined by someone like Rosenberg who wasn't insignificant. So, um, uh, I think it's important to take a look at that kind of material, especially as a cultural and intellectual historian, um, because it it gets us a little bit closer to what the general public would have been exposed to. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we could, certainly we can look at the you know, in fighting among uh, among the uh, the leaders, we can look at academic debates that are taking place in journals. And that tends to be where cultural and intellectualists are in focus. But, you know, here we have an opportunity to look at, you know, the, uh, well, I'll say the Fox News or the MSNBC, depending on who you're you're on, that had that kind of wide impact. And uh, it it takes us a step closer to what uh, your average German was at least being exposed to of course jumping the gap to find out exactly what the average german was thinking and how he was influenced by this is something that reception theorists are always trying to do but uh, just to um, since we do have a you know a, a very well read audience uh, Carl ginsberg's cheese and the worms you know an incredible find that he could find the the the, the writings of a semi literate uh, 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 Italian in the, uh, I believe, the 16th century um, uh, to get an idea of his world view. But uh, we, it's very rare that we find that kind of thing. So we're getting closer, but the point is that uh, the newspaper is a, it's a broadly disseminated and general uh, representation of what it was that the Nazis wanted the people to think. Mm-hmm. And another uh, interesting aspect of it is that um in the, in, the conc- in the conclusion, that's where it ended up. It could have been in the introduction. But anyway, um, I summarized the, the statistics about the authors, the contributors. And uh, of the 1,600 articles, I'm able to identify about half of the contributors. So, you know, these are most of them are, are anonymous or just sort of gone entities So we can see that a lot of them were academics. A number of them were journalists. And uh, some were actually part, identifiable party leaders, right? But the fact that there are a lot of these that are probably just doing piecework, just you know sort of non-entities. they might just be- co- uh, contracted due to these things. But what they're doing is, as Ian Kershaw said, they're working toward the Fuhrer they They know what the party wants to hear. They know what the line is generally. So then what you ha- what you read is their effort to say, Okay, I need to write a, you know, a commemorative article about Goethe or someone less significant like an and or something like this. How am I going to do that? So in the, in the very fact that they're sort of insignificant figures is interesting because you're getting this, low, you know, lower grade, if you will, perspective on how this should be done and how you can align uh, these great figures with the main principles of the Nazi movement, mm-hmm. right. so I think you know these are all issues that are uh, probably I haven't carefully read through the, um, the historiography or theory of using pu- public media, um, popular media, from using the newspapers up until a certain point, then radio, television. I mean, how are we going to really ferret through uh, cable TV and try to understand the kind of impact that it's had on our world, right? I mean, those kind of questions really should be in the minds of, of all of us. But uh, it's a little bit simpler to go back. But, you know, the the uh, another thing that's important is to remember that this is one newspaper among many. The Nazis, at least until 1933 and 34, were, were in a... Struggle with every other party. And uh, so they're putting, you know, they're laying claim to the German tradition, their version of Western civ um, that uh, uh, gives them a sense of a legitimacy by being able to say that they can align their principles with what they argue were the ideas of, you know, of Goethe and of Nietzsche and of uh, the paintings of Rembrandt and so on and so forth. But <clears throat> perhaps not as comprehensively. but in, a certain, in the same vein, so were the communists and so were the liberals. That's what I showed in the Beethoven book, that they're all doing this. So they're, um, they're the, the, uh, it's as complicated, or not as, but as, as cable TV today. Mm-hmm. And it goes to show that you really do have to pay attention to who's behind a media outlet and um you know take into consideration that there are multiple views and multiple bends being applied to uh not, not just news but uh tradition culture history i mean um i guess the equivalent in our world would be the uh, consistent and inconsistent uh, uh invocation of the founding fathers right you can find something in the founding fathers somewhere uh, because they were a diverse group and wrote a wide range of things uh, to support just about any position you'd like. So, you know, always be careful to see who's saying which founding father said what, when. <laughs> 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 and that's what this book does. It goes, it provides that detail. You, I was glad that you said at the outset that it, uh, um, that it provides this this level of specificity that, um you know we there aren't really great surprises here if if uh german historians out there um i think we all generally agree that the fundamental principles of nazi culture were well laid out quite well by fritz stern and george moskin and it comes out of this folkish tradition and again we can talk a little bit more about that, that um, but this shows how they how in detail how they were able to take the writings of of, uh, of particular figures and uh, give you that kind of nuanced uh, argumentation because it wasn't unsophisticated. I mean, these people were uh, uh, gebildet—that's the German term—that they were cultivated, and they were uh, and, and they were and they knew their their the figures. But what they're doing is going through and selecting passages or aspects of their biography that uh, that fit into the main themes of, of National Socialism, and then emphasizing those things, obviously looking for any sign of anti-Semitic, uh, even if it's just a throwaway line here and there, finding that in some uh, inconsequential publication of somebody, and then arguing, well, you know, it's been a Jewish conspiracy to undermine this work, which really is one of the great masterworks. We need to pay more attention to that because it includes this paragraph where... You know, Schopenhauer lashed out against uh, you know Jews as being cheap or something like that. Um, you know, this is the kind of process that they undertook. But you get, you find out that nuance. Or we, you know, you might say, well, obviously they associated themselves with Goethe. But here you find out, you know, precisely how they did it mm-hmm. in different circumstances during the early period when they're in power during the war. You know, there's some shift that takes place over that, mm-hmm. and so. It's actually it, it was exhausting to put together, and, and it can be exhausting to to read. It's 530 pages of of this detail, but you get a feeling for that. Um, that uh, well, really, what what Hitler uh, uh, theorized in uh, in my comp uh, that process of sloganeering, of pounding away at these ideas of of of, of, of uh, of repetition in what Mossy and uh, Stern recognize as a kind of liturgical process. If you say it enough, it becomes true. And so, reading through the book, you did, you do get a feeling of that. it's a little different each time, but you continually hear that Goethe was a patriot, and Goethe wasn't a world citizen, and Goethe had an anti-Semitic streak, and Goethe was, you know, a, could was in support of war when it was necessary, and so on and so forth. And you, if you hear that endlessly over 25 years of reading the newspaper. Um, you're going to, you know, probably come around to presuming that at least there's something to that, you know, if it's not absolutely true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's the value of, you know, one, uh, looking at a newspaper, and uh, even though that's, it's just one newspaper, and it's, uh, um, there are other elements that could be incorporated into a comprehensive sub- study of what the Nazis said about culture, but that's a, you know... a that's a, something we all have to work on together to do. And then, um, you know, going through those details mm-hmm. uh, from individual to individual.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask a kind of open-ended question. This may be the wrong approach to eliciting what the Nazis thought about Western Civ. But I, when I teach Western Civ or have taught it, I teach the students that it is for us, from our perspective, a literary tradition. We have this canon. There are these texts that have been picked out. And it gets passed on from one generation to the next. And so I explain to the students, that's what I'm doing now. That's my role. I'm going to pass it on to you. And so we begin, um, actually in the class that I teach, we don't uh do the Hebrew Bible or anything like that. But we begin with the Greeks and, you know, we go through the Romans and then we go to the Middle Ages and then we go to the Renaissance and then we come to early modern times and the French Revolution. And I say, okay, see these texts and how Aristotle, for example, has been moved from one context to another or how Tacitus has been moved or how, um, you know, Plato's dialogues have been moved or here you have Marcus Aurelius and everybody read that and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it adds up to oh, this package of texts or ideas that we call Western civilization. But it's more than anything else. It's very, I hate to use this ex- expression, but it's very multicultural because these texts get put into one kind of sprachraum. You know, they get put into one linguistic context and then translated into another and another time and so on and so forth. It's not the product of any one group of people. It's it's this sort of agglomeration of, again, I like this word, text of, of books or ideas that kind of ends up with us. I take it that the Nazis did not think of it that way.
1: Well, I, okay, I—that's exactly the way I, you know, teach Western Civ. I think that and that and that Western Civ has become this, uh, you know, this story. Right. The story that we tell uh, ourselves and then uh, and in fact, there's, whenever there's talk about sort of eliminating Western civics, it's often immigrant framers. They come and say, no, we don't want that eliminated from the, from the, from the class because we want our children to understand yeah. the background that we're coming from. So it's 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 not even. A, a, but it is a construct in any case. So that would be the difference, you know, you you articulated there's those selections from different peri- you know, different periods that shift a little bit for the most part that we we think of it in terms of a canon that's kind of fixed. And in general in the United States, we I think that if you look at most western civ texts, although some since the 60s have brought in, you know, uh, some other questions about groups that have been left out and principles that are hypocritical. And of course, the reality that our democracy is incomplete and imperfect. But it it, it it highlights this idealized version of Athenian Greece and uh, the Republican side of Rome and pick and those principles of rationalism right. uh, a scientific orientation to things uh, uh, something trending toward democracy etc are are highlighted in that story right yeah. but even when even when you teach the the Greeks you one should remind people that you know, especially in generations prior to us, they knew much more about the Greek tradition than we did, and that they knew that the Greeks could also be quite vicious, could also be quite militaristic, could also be quite spiritual. What what Nietzsche refers to as the Dionysian, in his effort to correct that overemphasis on the Apolo- Ap- Apollonian, yeah. right, mm-hmm. right. So that romantics will say, um, or. Or authoritarian uh, 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 absolutist monarchs would have emphasized perhaps more the militaristic side or the imperial side of Rome. Right, so there's always picking and choosing going on, even within you know the Sprachraum that you you've identified. Yeah. Right, and um, so the, the I, I don't I don't shake a stick at the Germans for having their own. Variety of what we would call Western civ and what, in this framework, is referred to as culture. This tradition yeah. of Kultur, that that uh, instead of culminating in uh, you know the the uh, the actions of Thomas Jefferson, culminated in the, you know, the construction of the German nation, You know, they're constructing their own story. So uh, coming around to the you know our subject, uh, there was. There was a pre-existing, uh, conservative German nationalistic version of Western culture that pre-existed the Nazis. And it's, you know, in, in looking at this, it's important to remember that. And it, the, the Nazis really didn't make up much at all. They were just very good at, 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 at synthesizing it, blending it. Selling it, uh, and you know that's true of just about every aspect of their psyche, like, including the anti-Semitism. So you know that's just something that people like Fritz Stern and George Mosse showed us in the 60s, and others, others have shown us ever since that these anti-Semitic, for instance, principles go back at least into the 19th century, tacked on to the long 2,000-year history that preexisted that. So by the mid-19th century, coming out of the Romantic period, when the Germans are trying to construct Something called a Germany out of the uh, mass of German principalities that were unable to really put it together, right? They emphasize uh, blood, language, and culture, okay? And that's and that's when this this story is put together. Um, and people like Houston Stewart Chamberlain and Paul Lagarde and uh, some others that we associate with this crazy right wing, um, not very well known in their day, Um, yeah, broadly known, they're known in their own circles, Um, are the ones that really, you know, uh, constructed the story that the Nazis tap into and sort of refer to. Then by the 1920s, coming out of the First World War, you know, there are a broad, there's a broader range of people who understand the things in this way. You can go to the university, and you're going to be taught, you know, to a certain degree. You're not going to get the American or the British or the French version of Western Civ. You're going to have this Germanic version of it. At least that's going to be in the air. Um, and uh, and then coming out of the crisis of the of the war. And of the, the economic and political uh, c- catastrophe that followed in Germany, um, groups like the Nazis, but especially the Nazis, take this tradition and say, "Let's look at this." This is not we're not invoking this just to show you that you have a great past, but to show you that we can use this great past as a basis for moving toward a better future. For reconstructing ourselves. but so holding, uh, you know, that's a principle that I, you know, presented in the introduction. They're holding a mirror up to the German people saying, look how great you have been. Now, we need to use those things to move forward. Now, we're going to do that, but at, at the same time that we're going to eliminate things we don't like. So artistic modernism as a response to modernity, uh, 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 anything, you know, Put together by Jews or people supposedly influenced by Jews, and so on. That's all going to be eliminated. So in the end, the constructive side of their project, you know, is uh, it's stillborn because they cut out all of the, you know, the really innovative things happening. So it becomes an invocation of just tradition. Okay. So that's the broad, you know, frame for that. But I don't. But um, um, I I don't think I think what they do is heinous. The, the particular elements that they emphasize are troubling to us, but the actual process isn't unique. Right, mm-hmm. a, a tradition, a culture, a society, a group, a community. I mean, it's an imagined community. So they're constructing this just as we do. Mm-hmm. they just, just as we do. Mm-hmm. Now, the themes that the Nazis, you know, emphasize that do they do come out of this late 19th century variant. Um, but that we that are, is referred to as folkish tradition, uh, a strong, you know, extreme. We'll say you know we couldn't use this term, fundamentalist version of it, right? Uh, emphasizing um, uh, racial origins. You know that we are that we are German, and everything that's good and beautiful in the Western tradition has some Germanic base. Okay, so we, we have trouble with that, but um, I'm not going to try to make a comparison to things that we argue, but uh, uh, they lay claim to the, the, what they like about the Renaissance, what they like about ancient Rome, what they like about ancient Greece, and they say that this group of Aryans tracked their way from wherever they determined they came from in the Himalayas uh, across time, and were responsible at various points for these highlights and that's how they can say that someone like uh Da Vinci or Michelangelo were actually Germanic and that they can lay claim to that. The other thing that they argue is that everything is political. Uh they are a revolutionary movement and that's, you know, could also, you know, something that the the far left was was arguing, but you need to be committed to something. And art itself can't be needs to be subsumed under the interest of the state of the of the of the country's mission. So they're always looking for some variation of patriotism, whether it be you know uh, uh, Dante's uh, 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 alliances to Florence or other Italian city states, or Luther's uh, general Germanness, even though there not a German nation at that time everybody needs to have a political uh, art is not to be done for art's sake art is done for the purposes of something uh, national and then um, uh, an emphasis on militarism an emphasis on 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 the need uh, when necessary to fight so almost all of these figures are are uh, scanned for some indication of what they refer to as a fighting nature, and, uh, you know, da Vinci de- de- designed uh, uh, weaponry, um, and uh, uh, Durer uh, did a lot of military drawings, and uh, Beethoven, you know, would get pissed off every once in a while and rail against whoever it was he was mad at every once in a while, and so forth. So you're looking for a fighting nature. You also... Uh, they also emphasize the fact that even though these are uh, intellectuals, I put that in quote, uh, creative individuals, they're they're still in touch with their roots. They're still uh, average uh, uh, human beings at the same time, and this is this is because the Nazis want to be careful not to write themselves into the corner of 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 deriding what they had, they thought of as arid intellectualism, uh, it, I mean, fundamentally, it's a popular populist movement, right? So they've set themselves up against these urbanite, uh, effete, lefty, Jewish-inspired, or Jewish others, okay? So they, they want to appear cultivated able to invoke all of these uh, great figures. But they also want to say that each of these great figures was also in touch with the people. And they, you know, they like stories about Anton Bruckner, you know, getting drunk. I mean, he drank a lot of beer, apparently, and <laughs> even throwing up, you know, so much. And, uh, you know, that uh, that Mozart was, uh, you know, a, a, a man of the people and so on. They also strongly want to emphasize a romantic component, which you know comes out of the construct of the of the wars of the liberation. So, a, what they call a steel, what people call a steel romanticism, and that's this, this sort of it's murky, very murky as uh, Germanic uh, theory can be. Um, uh, but that uh, you're not doing, you know, it's not rational, not it's not. Fundamentally rationalistic, it's not fundamentally Enlightenment, it's not fundamentally uh, Athenian, we'll say, it's uh, Apollonian. It has this Dionysian component as well. And then they're always looking, uh, just scanning over some of the major themes that run through all of their, their version of it, of the, of the canon. Uh, they're looking for signs of anti Semitic bile. And, uh, you know, the fact is they can find it in many cases. You know, and that's a disturbing reality. That you know, Shakespeare did write uh, *A Merchant of Venice*, and uh, you know, I don't care how you argue it; that is not a <laughs> that is not a, a complimentary uh, figure. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Goethe did grumble a little bit when he heard about the opening up of uh, interracial or. Uh, 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 I, don't think, I don't even like to use the term race, and, and, uh, but uh, uh, mixed-rate uh, marriages between ger- German Jews. He, he is on record as having said something uh, critical of that. The difference is that we look at that and say, well, that's kind of anomaly overall. His principles don't fit with that, And where they say, no, that's the center of it. This is what he thought, and this is the most important aspect of what he thought the only difference between these earlier figures and us is that we understand it not in religious or cultural terms but we understand it in scientific racial terms so they're always saying you know previous um, uh, anti-semitic uh, uh uh outbursts or you know fundamentally anti-semitic people like luther uh didn't they came too early to really understand that it was a biological problem so they're constantly correcting their supposed predecessors by saying well he just came a little bit too early he didn't really realize that it's a that this is a, this is a, a pest that has to be eliminated not something that you just complain about and uh, maybe um, uh, take a, a lesser measures mm-hmm. yeah so. That, you know those things we don't we don't those are, you know those are things that certainly a, a, a cultivated German at the time would also have at least rolled his or her eyes at you know that they're pushing this so hard in those directions uh, so I don't want to say that every German had that but those kind of principles were in the air of this uh, this fund I I'll use the term fundamentalist Germanic worldview. And it it was part of university education. It was part of high school education for some, just as a strong fundamentalist position might be part of education in in any town in the United States on different terms. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I I have a question that sort of stems from my own personal experience, and that is as I was being trained as a – a Russian historian in the 80s. And I remember that one of the things that we did was we would critique Soviet uh, writings. And they always began with a kind of boilerplate. Lenin said this and Lenin said that. And they would talk about class struggle in an era in which there was no class struggle. And they would talk, they would, you know, you interpret popularity. in other words, they they were putting their spin on it too. And we would say, well, this is just ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's risible that they would write this stuff. Some of it's okay, but, but mostly it's just risible. Was there anyone at the time and I guess I need to be more specific. Before 1933, were there Germans in Germany saying, this is ridiculous, oh, yeah. what they've done? And then without after 1933, were there people outside Germany saying, this is obviously fantasy? With,
1: I mean, without question. I mean, that's, the, the, the the this book is, you know, and it presents itself as, this is Nazi interpretations of Western culture, as presented by the Nazi newspaper. Okay. and and And, and but it's important to know. The communist newspaper certainly arguing the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, you, in, in before 1933, they're all you know uh, fighting tooth and nail for the right to be, be able to invoke the the um, uh, German Kultur in their interest. So they're battling at that point, right? The, you know, the difference being this: for for all the reasons we know, this party gets in power and then it's able to use the levers of a help to-, to develop. You know, the attempt to develop a totalitarian cultural control. Okay, so then it becomes, you know, ludicrously overemphasized, just as it was in the Soviet system, just as it was in East Germany with the Marxist Leninist stuff being crammed down their throats. And people, you know, at the time were probably, you know, rolling their eyes. I don't, ar- I wouldn't argue that absolutely every German, you know, Accepted this. That's you know. It's really this minority of hardcore people who really believe it. Okay. Then there the people who are contributing to it maybe just in order to sell an article in a newspaper. I I hypothesize that that's possible, and that people who are reading the paper they certainly know that they're reading a Nazi paper. Okay. Uh, You know you can't miss that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, by 33, 34, 35 and, uh, and beyond, you know, it really all the newspapers are following this line, this just being the main, you know, uh, flagship. But uh, um, then you're going to be taught, you're, you're looking at a, maybe a younger generation of people who've only seen newspapers that are pounding this line, right? And my, my guess is that most people are looking for the sports headlines. They're looking for the, you know the, the the basic line of just to see you know what what they better say in order to not get in trouble. We'll say we'll put it that way, right? Maybe not reading each and every word of all of these arguments that I've pieced together for us, right? But seeing those headlines, you know, I, as I say in the in the conclusion, if you're constantly reading that all the major figures are anti-Semitic, militaristic. Um, you know, patriotic, so on and so forth, just the by dint of that being consistently reiterated as it was in, uh, under Marxist-Leninist and culture in the East and so on and so forth. You know, I, my guess is that's how it trickles down, right? But, you know, someone like George Mosse and his family, someone like Peter Gay and his family, and, of course, those are exceptional characters anyway, uh, a, a liberal... uh, uh um Oh, who's a wonderful uh, diarist? Um, uh, I will bear witness. A picture Emperor, right? I mean, they're looking at this stuff going. This is just patently insane, <laughs> for sure. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and and you know, uh, going. To, I've focused on the cultural history. Uh, you know, you got, got to cut somewhere. But uh, someone could. It, it's a huge undertaking. Maybe, I don't know. I'm. I've just finished. Greg graduate program directorship. Now I'm going to take a breath. When you ask me what I'm going to do next, actually the next thing I'm going to do is take a break from being graduate program director (laughs) and figure out what I'm going to do next. Because, you know, as soon as the book came out, I took over this bureaucratic job, which, which is taxing. But, um, you know, someone should really write a comprehensive study of of this newspaper. And, you know, because, um, uh, something that uh, um, David Blackburn asked me at the German so- Studies Association. He'd had a conversation with Ian Kershaw, and he said, "Well, how the heck do you survive studying this nasty stuff for so long?" Uh, and he had asked that, Ian Kershaw that. He didn't, I don't remember what he said. Ian Kershaw's response was, "But mine was well, at least I was, you know, focusing on the high cultural aspect of things. You know, I, I was still somehow writing about Beethoven and Mozart." But the other thing is that if you go through this paper, you will get the crazy Nazi spin on every one of the major events from the from their rise to power you know up all the diplomatic stages leading to the second world war and then each step of the first world war, of the second world war you know you're getting the Nazi version of mm-hmm. it i you know I kept collecting. The day of the, you know, of uh, Operation Barbarossa, the day of the invasion of Normandy, you know, you you can just see their version of all of this. And it, you know, it doesn't surprise you that it was a completely uh, Hitlerite version of that, of each of these things. Mm -hmm. And the other stuff that the the articles, consistent articles on the front page about white slavery, uh, Jewish blood ritual, you know, they just keep pounding at the protocols of Zion all the way through, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So, th- without question, anybody but the ten percent maybe or of hard fighters is going to look at this and say, eh. but of course, that's that's part of the story too, because so many Germans said, oh, you know, the 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 anti-Semitic part, they emphasize that. It seems kind of crazy, but that's just how they're getting votes. Okay, so we can read through the rest of it and say, yeah, uh, reunification, remilitarization, building the economy, we can work with that. But, you know, this stuff's just crazy. So we set that aside, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, I think that that um, probably people did read the paper that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there would have been people looking at this mm-hmm. and saying it was not. Mm-hmm. So uh,
0: another question I had was, well, let me put it this way: Could you tell us a little bit about the engagement of um, academics and academia in the production of these articles? Because this is also a question in Soviet history: What kind of buy-in did the professoriate have to this new Soviet culture, quote unquote?
1: Absolutely. Well, it's this is an important story that that has been the, probably rightly so you know, the focus of uh, of our scholarship to this. Point. And in the musicology world, Michael Cater and uh, Pamela Potter and Celia Applegate uh, doing a reception theory version of this, but not concentrating as much as on the popular media as I have, but concentrating on what, got, what scholars, musicologists, historians, music historians and so on did. And, you know, the record is clear that uh, especially in musicology uh it's a it, it, it it's really a german construct and then it gets transferred over to, over to the united states and says you know it's kind of hard hard to accept that the reason we love beethoven and Mozart so much is because of this sort of <laughs> this uh this process but there you know people have written themselves into that argument um uh but uh then of course uh others have have gone on to show how uh ancient historians and 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 german um Uh, archaeology and uh, 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 Volkskunde and so on and so forth uh, were all you know implicated. Now we've already talked about the background of that which is sort of a given that within a German world there's this German emphasis on this sort of thing. But then as this folkish version of things becomes more I won't. It, I mean, before the war, it's not entrenched, but more and more present in academia. You're going to have various scholars who have these views getting chairs, giving, give, teaching. Okay, and then when the Nazis are in control and on the rise, those people and those and their students are going to get the positions. You see, because it's consistent. And then anybody else, any other grad student who's going to want to make you know a, a living is going to have to you know, start writing in terms of, of eugenics, you know, or, or whatever it is. So you can sort of see how it evolved to that point. But, uh, you know, in in this particular case, um, aside from the the, the journalists, part, clear party hacks, anonymous people who are contributing, the largest identifiable uh, um, uh, uh group, of contributors are scholars, and uh, some of them are, 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 are notable scholars, uh, not people that you would know unless you you know, knew the field, but they're people who are significant historians, significant musicologists, significant literary um, historians, who are being con- t- contracted by the Volkische Beobachter to, to write these commemorative articles. And when they do, they work toward the Fuhrer to make sure that at least some aspect of their article communicates uh, one or more of these themes, mm-hmm. tying the individual that they're writing about into the ideological framework. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're involved. Mm-hmm. So they're involved.
0: W- one one final question before I ask the final question, I guess that would make it the penultimate question, and that is, um, did any of the views espoused by or in the doctor, Uh, or the uh, general kind of worldview, the concern, this folkish view of history. Did any of that survive the war? And can you find any of it in Germany today?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Having just, uh, you know, explained to my daughters and other people that it was all right that the Germans won, <laughs> yeah. That that's this funny. is a different Germany, and um, we're talking that, about
0: the World Cup, uh, by the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. sure. I mean, there's yeah. this animus, of course, among my European friends. I should just uh, to break
0: in for a second. I saw nobody where I live, which is a very liberal place. I saw many people in Argentina jerseys. I saw nobody in a German
1: jersey. Nobody, right? <laughs> nobody. Right? <laughs> Except, yeah. No, it's interesting. <laughs> And then, and it, it's, you know, my daughter said, well, that's because they, they, you know, they initiated the first and second world wars." And I said, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. And of course, my British friends and, you know, ironically, the Brazilians were probably the only ones rooting for the Germans, right? Because they didn't want Argentina to I mean, win for their own historical reasons. Yeah. But, um, well, okay. So the the... As you know, it's, uh, that the, the, the dirty little secret is that a number of these figures who did contribute, you know, not just to the focus of the Bakhtar, but to various aspects of Nazified scholarship, continued to work afterward, uh, were denazified and so forth. Now, yeah, writing these articles isn't is the same as actually running a factory with slave labor and so on and so forth. So, I mean, this is just a, another version of that, you know, deeper version. Uh, and of course, we wouldn't have uh, walked on the moon without that. So um, the other is that uh, uh, East Germany, of course, I wrote about that in um, the Beethoven book, uh, shifted over to this uh, imposed Marxist-Leninist version of things, uh, which was just maybe even more uh, uh, simplistic than this, um, as you know. And uh, so you apparently have a complete eradication of this Germanic view of things in uh, in east germany but just replaced by something else um, and now that we're into are we into the fifth generation now i'd have to think about that but anyway we've had that the theory of the three generations before you can actually confront the past in germany and start to question um, the 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 actions of the of the perpetrators but i would say here's the here here's my real answer to that it's just devastatingly sad, right that the you know these bastards tainted what was the most beautiful about German culture. Now, I think that what's beautiful about German culture continues to be beautiful, but you still have to sort of justify the fact that you love. Goethe and that you love the romantics and that you love Beethoven and that you want to dedicate yourself to living and then you would like to go to, you know, travel down the Romantische Strasse and go to some of these places. You know, they wrought this war that that flattened many of the beautiful sites in their cities. And then and that I, I you know, uh uh they brought that on, okay? And then they and then they made it uh you know, uh, questionable as to whether or not uh, uh, people like, uh, let's say, a, a Mozart or a Nietzsche, let's say Nietzsche in particular, um, is uh, it could should be considered a, a great humorist or not? Right? So they 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 under in this effort, which I argue was their effort to revitalize themselves with reference to their great past. And ironically, the horrors that they perpetrated were were motivated by this uh, uh, ideal of beauty right so that's that's the corner I wrote myself into that you know what that the Germans actually the Nazis were actually doing this because they thought that they were going to render something ideal. you know that's the that's the horrible twist here that all of those people died and were murdered because of an aesthetic ideal. Right. So that's the corner that I write myself into in this case. All right, But the fact is that they undermined it and they destroyed it for a generation of young people uh, and for and for young Germans. I mean, it's more Americans that come in and, and say that they love Beethoven than, mm-hmm. than Koreans who go to Leipzig to study the music tradition. You know, it's not German kids themselves. I mean, they would much rather do hip hop now that might be enough. <laughs> right but uh, i think it in i think the germanic version i mean any any german of a certain youth is going to roll their eyes at any implication of this kind of of stuff and that's for, that's good that's good but it's also sad because it, it also seems to involve throwing the baby out with the bathwater
0: yeah yeah that's interesting i went on a a scholarship once to uh to germany and uh, I was at an institute, and it was interesting the things that they showed us um, as sort of artifacts of German They showed us films, but the films were invariably about how Germany was guilty for World War One, World War Two, or some other bad thing. You see what I'm saying? They, they yeah. never—they just couldn't bring themselves to to trumpet anything that they had done. It was all very eyes to the ground. This is German culture. <laughs> Right. And it got kind of tiresome, actually. You know, it just got tiresome. Um, but I, you know, I certainly can see where they were, uh, coming from. And I think you're right. They are tainted in a certain way because, you know, the words, uh, German and Nazi are so firmly bound together, together with the word Holocaust, I would say that there's almost no getting them apart. And that is a tragedy. Um, because, you know, that was a while ago now. So. Anyway, uh, David, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, let me tell everybody that we've been talking with David Dennis about his book, *Inhumanities: Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. David, let me conclude the interview. I know you've already answered this to a certain extent. Conclude the interview with our traditional final question, and that is, what are you going to do now? What are you doing now?
1: Well, um, as I get, you know, my, my, my short answer is recover, uh, from, uh, because I took on the, uh, graduate program uh, the same year that the book was coming out. And let me just advise people, don't do that
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that last year, when you think you're done, uh, finishing that uh, manuscript is actually the toughest with all of the final mm-hmm. work that I've done. Um, but my, uh, I'm going to, uh, follow i my uh uh one of my mentors robert wolf lead i believe and that is to uh try to do something very fresh um and in in the sense that he went from uh first world war uh uh culture to uh aviation because he was interested in piloting and so on and uh, then wove that together with his profound knowledge of cultural history to write his uh, uh his uh a uh, you know, real survey of, of the impact of aviation on the arts and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my experience, the, the, the big story is, is um, the computer and uh, media and, um, and the uh, digital uh, revolution. And I really think that, that we've got to try to get a grasp on that and the, the cultural impact of it. Of course, it's enormous. And um, that's why I was saying, I don't know, how are we going to figure out how we can, you know, write about the impact of cable news or something like that? But I really think that's where uh, where we need to shift attention if um, if we're going to, uh, uh, you know, keep up. And uh, I think I'd like to try to contribute to that somehow. I've i looked at a, into doing. A, I've been asked to do a survey, a cultural history of the impact of computing. Uh, so far, mm-hmm. and uh, my guess is that w- I would try to cut that off at somewhere, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, yesterday. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think somewhere there to do something fresh, uh, but I my eye is always uh, drawn back toward um, uh, you know the, the issues that I've dealt with before, and uh, probably a backup uh, option would be to consider doing a broader history of the focus bail bale or mm-hmm. something like that so that would be i really don't feel like going back into the <laughs> newspaper but uh if that needs to be done i'm probably the man to do it
0: well i wish you luck on all those projects and david thank you for being on the show
1: well marshall it's been a real pleasure and of course i uh, deeply appreciate the, the uh, attention and the and the care, by the way audience he, he has read the book <laughs>
0: <laughs> very nice of you well uh, thank you again and let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast thank you very much for listening I'm Marshall Poe the host of uh, New Books in History and as I say we appreciate your support and I hope everyone has a great
1: week